0: As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of
1: Olives.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Praise God. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and at Once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her Untie them and bring them to me If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and they will send them right away This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of the donkey The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds then went ahead of them, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, "This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee." The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I might think of that song, "He is mighty to save." He is mighty to save. Don't you love it when God saves? Uh, we can rejoice today. Uh, what a! Gr- yeah, you, we can interrupt service any time with that kind of announcement, can't we? What I'm about to say, I say it to empathize, to sympathize with whoever puts the words up on the screen. Because we had one point today that was kind of, and somebody's looking at me back there. Why did you say that? Well, I used to, uh, I used to officiate high school soccer when we lived in Eastern Oregon, and uh, I'm a soccer fan too, and. Um, uh, I ended up not I only did that for a few years because I often did uh, games for the hometown team, and it can be a bit of an adversarial situation at times, and it wasn 't good when people were angry at the pastor of the church of the Nazarene in town, so I decided, well, I probably should keep doing this. But I remember I'd get, uh, i get i 'm a fan of the game and I was officiating the game, and sometimes when I was officiating the game, I found, found myself being a fan. And so things would go by because I was watching the game and not officiating the game. And there's a big difference. And people are very vocal about such things. So I just want you to know, if I was back there putting these things up on the screen, it would never happen. I'd be too involved in the service. And uh, so whoever is doing that, I just want you to know I understand when a slide doesn't come up immediately because I've been there, done that. So... Parades. Do you like parades? Yeah. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm not particularly a fan of the ones they show on TV at New Year. I, I, I like the parades where I take my camp chair and I, I, I stake out my spot on the sidewalk or curb and uh, I watch the parade go by up close and personal. When our girls were growing up and we were living in Eastern Oregon, we always looked forward to the Umatilla County Fair Parade. I mean, that was big stuff for our town. Uh, It was actually the Umatilla County Fair and Rodeo. And, um, you know, it, it was rural farm and ranch country. Um, so we had great things in our parades. Like, you know, there was always a, the sheriff's mounted posse and the riding clubs with either quarter horses or Arabians or Appaloosas. Or sometimes uh, the Mexican riding clubs like those horses that did the high stepping. Th- even the Andalusian. Have you done you know about Andalusian horses? And... Um, of course, there were always the local dignitaries, uh, the mayor and people like that who rode usually in a convertible or, or maybe an old restored car or something and, and the local school marching bands and, and of course the, uh, the implement dealer in town always had to have a few tractors and combines and swathers like, or uh, things like that. And then there were the restored or cars or the hot rods or the Harleys, you know, blah, 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 blah down this, the street. And, uh, and then the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and, uh, oh yes, the cloggers and the square dancers <laughs> on the f- flatbed of a truck somewhere, you know. By the way, those were our floats. We didn't have real floats. What you did was you put something on the back of a truck or something. That's how you did it in eastern Oregon. And then there were the rodeo queens in their courts. Um, From the Farm City Pro Rodeo, which was our rodeo, and the Pendleton Roundup down the road 20 miles, and sometimes from other rodeos around the region. And uh, of course, no parade would be complete without the, those men of the Alababa Temple of the Shrine. <laughs> you know, remember when their fezzes, they got their fezzes on? And they're putting around in these little bitty cars and on these motor scooters, you know. And they're throwing candy to the kids, and the kids are running out in the parade and trying to get run over and stuff like that. It was always exciting. On the coast, our big, our big parade was the June Dairy Parade. Bring your umbrella because June is still rainy season. Bob knows. He's from that next spent time in that neck of the woods. And there were a lot of the same things, but there was one notable exception I have to tell you about. I think my wife knows what's coming. Um, they, they were what I would call the prime time baton twirlers a group of ladies who dressed in those uniforms that they might have looked good in 50 years ago, but not so much now. I mean, they were pretty good, you know. But uh, the uniforms... uh... (laughs) Well, today we're going to... Look at a parade that the Scripture calls the triumphal entry. It was a one-man parade. Um, And um, it was triumphal, but that triumph was to be short-lived. Folks, the real triumph would come later. You know what I'm talking about? The real triumph would come later. Amen. Amen. This, this event is recorded in all four of the Gospels, and if you were to take time to read each one, I think it's Matthew uh, chapter 21, uh, Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 19, and John chapter 12 as well, where you'll you find this record in the Gospels of what we is referred to as the triumphal entry. And if you were to look at each one, you'll find out that there are slight differences in the story in each Gospel according to the perspective of that particular author. Because if you know anything about the the gospel writers, they they tended to write to a particular audience. They were trying to communicate something there. What the gospels do agree on is that there was a great crowd. They shouted the praises of Jesus. They spread their cloaks and tree branches on the road. And Jesus rode on a donkey. Uh, one, of the, one of the discrepancies you'll find is they don't all mention the fact that it was the foal of a donkey. It was the donkey's colt. Yeah, I guess. That's what you call a baby donkey. I don't know. I'm not good with horses. And those kind of things that you... Um, we, we had cows growing up. My dad said if you can't milk it or eat it, it doesn't have a place on our place he called horses hay burners that's what he called them so i don't know a lot about them but um, it was the it was the foal of the donkey okay so i uh, what and so, uh, depending again on the gospel writer you'll find in some places it mentions both the mama and the baby in some places it just mentions the baby have any of you been reading this the ashes to fire if you look at the the uh pictorial the picture of, of the um, triumphal entry today, you'll see Jesus riding on the mama donkey. Wrong. He was riding on the foal, the, the young one, which makes this thing more amazing. Um, unbroken, never ridden before. But So, why not a horse? I mean, horses are, you know, that's kind of a class. You, you know, think about a donkey. Oh, I mean, they don't even sound cool when they vocalize. Well, um, from a Gentile's perspective, certainly a horse would seem more noble, more honorable, more prestigious, more befitting a king. Uh, We think of, you know, riding in on a white horse. But in Jesus' day, not many Jews owned horses. That was more of a Roman thing, and as a result, the horse was associated with war and conquest. The horse was what you would ride into battle. The horse was what pulled the chariot. The more familiar, more common animal in Jewish culture was the donkey. It was smaller, more easily kept, ate less, and was very capable of performing the tasks of transportation and beast of burden. And the donkey was a symbol of humility and peace. The donkey was a symbol of humility and peace. It was not the lowly animal in Jewish eyes that it might be in ours. In, in Jewish history, especially if you read in the Old Testament, you'll find that kings, princes, prophets, and judges had all ridden donkeys. Donkeys. And in fact, it was the animal that kings and princes rode in times of peace. It was a humble animal, possessed not only by royalty, but by the common man as well, and very much a part of everyday life in that culture. So Jesus comes, in keeping with his mission and his character, riding on a donkey. Let me share some scripture with you that speaks of these aspects of Jesus' character. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul is writing to the Philippians and he's saying, um, you need to be humble like Jesus was humble. You need to be more concerned about others than about yourselves. And here's what he said. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I don't think we I don't think our human minds can can really grasp what it meant for Jesus to leave heaven and put on the flesh of humanity. That's somewhat and I'm not I mean you know when God created man he said it's very good. So I'm not I'm not putting down God's creation, but when you look at that quantum leap downward that Jesus took, it would be like us saying, "God, please make me an amoeba." And then He's not only uh, the, the donkey, not only signified His Jesus humility, it also signified peace. What did the prophet Isaiah say Jesus would be? He said he would be wonderful counselor. Prince of peace. Peace, Everlasting Father, mighty God, didn't he? Prince of peace. Listen to what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace. I live, leave with you my peace I give you. Jesus was peace. He was the embodiment of peace. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So Jesus, by riding into Jerusalem that day or on the road into Jerusalem, on the back of a donkey, was signify, signifying His humility and peace. His peace. And so he rides in that day and there's this huge crowd. Probably much larger than you and I would imagine at first. To understand historically how how large this crowd would have been, we examine what Flavius Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, writes about one particular Passover celebration. Josephus writes, Cestius, the governor the Roman governor of Palestine attempted to impress Emperor Nero that the Passover was an important feast for the Jews. And to do this, he ordered the high priest to count the actual number of lambs that were sacrificed at Passover in the year A.D. 65. Cestius quoted the high priest as giving him a figure Of 256,500 lambs that were offered for sacrifice at Passover. The Jewish law stipulated that a minimum of 10 people were required for one sacrificial lamb. With that ratio, we would be looking at a crowd of at least 3 million pilgrims a big crowd. It's obvious that this would have been an extremely crowded time in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. So let's look at the faces in the crowd this morning. Some in the crowd believed in Jesus. John chapter 2 verse 23 tells us that now while he was in Jerusalem, Jesus... At the Passover festival, and this is earlier, it's not at this particular time. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Sometimes I think we think, well, the only people that really believed in Jesus were the disciples, and they certainly did. But there were others who would have considered themselves his disciple, but didn't necessarily follow follow him and spend time with him like the twelve. And then in Luke chapter 19, and again, because... The different Gospels kind of share a little different narrative of the triumphal entry. I'm going to make reference primarily to Luke this morning as well. Luke chapter 19, verse 37, which is Luke's record of the triumphal entry. It says, When he came near, again speaking of Jesus, the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So I'm thinking we're speaking of more than just the twelve at this point. So there were believers in the crowd that day. They would have testified with Peter, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They would have said, Yes, that's true. The problem was that although they believed in Him, they didn't understand His mission. See, they wanted a victorious Jesus... They wanted a Jesus who would change things in Israel and in a way that they were thinking of. Their heads were kind of full of self-seeking dreams. They remember even among the disciples themselves, they wondered aloud which of them would be able to sit at his right hand when he came into his kingdom. They were thinking of the prizes, not the costs. And to them, it was the idea of a chicken in every pot and free medical care and self-governance. That's what Jesus was going to bring. You know, free food. Hey, how many times had Jesus done that? And free medical care. Be healed. And it was done. And we all know He was supposed to boot the Romans out, right? And once again, they wouldn't be under the thumb of another dictatorship of some kind. And and especially for that that group that Jesus had around Himself, the twelve, it must have been a a heady time for them. Especially at this day when everybody's cheering. And I think they probably expected Jesus to be accepted quickly by every Jewish person. He would be greater than David. David. But then Jesus kept up this negative talk about dying. He kept hinting that persecution might be their lot, not glory. See, Jesus' vision was the vision of a suffering servant. and He made clear that following Him meant taking up a cross. But the disciples wanted a conquering king, a victorious Messiah, but that was not to be, at least not in the way they were thinking. The encouraging thing about all of this is that after the resurrection and after the Holy Spirit came and filled them, their priorities changed, their motivation for Jesus altered to the point that they were willing to die for the one who died for them. Now they were in it for a whole different reason. Now they believed in Jesus not because of a free lunch, but because of the free gift of eternal life. Well, another face the face in the crowd that day, some in the crowd rejected Jesus. Luke 19, again, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Because they were proclaiming Him as King. As the Messiah come. They didn't want to hear that. In fact, in Luke chapter 9 verse 22, it tells us what was going to happen. And again, Jesus speaking, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So there was this group out there that said, No, we reject you. We reject your claims. The Son of God, they knew better than that. To be the Son of God, you had to be concerned with all those little jots and tittles, all those little marks in the the Hebrew writing of the law. With keeping every one of the unbelievably numerous and detailed laws the Pharisees lived by. They wanted a ritual, Jesus. They thought that the most important matter of religion was to be found not in faith or love or mercy, but in how they dressed and washed and ate. They feared losing their power and status and the good life they enjoyed if the people chose to follow after Jesus and obey His teachings rather than theirs. Because they did live the good life. They were looked up to. They were generally wealthy. Being a Pharisee paid. They feared that their whole culture might be absorbed into the culture of the Hellenistic world of that day. So they emphasized the thousand little details that kept them distinctly Jewish. And that's what would save you in their minds. See, these everyday rituals were the way that they would keep themselves pure and unique, separate from the world. But Jesus came preaching that the real way to God was through loving Him and others and by living by faith. In fact, Jesus often broke the rules that the Pharisees had set up. He broke their laws for the Sabbath. He ate with the unclean and defied their laws of purification. No way could he be the Son of God. The Pharisees wanted to ritual Jesus, but he disappointed them, so they rejected him. The next group we see in that crowd that days, some in the crowd were merely spectators. Did any of you read the little uh, sermonette thing in ashes to fire this morning? Good. That's good. I'm not, I'm not commending you for that. It's just that this will be brand new to you because it applies. The writer of, of uh, the devotional uh, this morning, and it actually comes from um, Matthew chapter 21, says this. One of my spring enjoyments is the beginning of baseball. While living near Chicago, a favorite activity of mine was to visit Wrigley Field, home of the Chicago Cubs, one particular visit stands out in my memory. Arriving a little late that day, I had I had just crested the top of the stairs at the entrance to the field box seats when suddenly the crowd erupted in cheers and applause. Apparently something had happened on the field just prior to the game beginning that had people out of their seats and roaring. I quickly located my numbered place to find the man assigned to the adjacent seat going wild with cheers, whistles, and applause. I poked him on the shoulder and asked, What happened? Without the slightest embarrassment, he said, I don't know. I just got here. (laughs) And I think, in large part, that's exactly what was going on this day. You know, you can see... uh, uh, Josiah and his family walking down maybe a block off the main drag through Jerusalem. It's like, hey Ma, do you hear all that? Let's go see what's going on over here. And they really don't know and they really don't care too much about Jesus. They just know everybody's excited about Him. So they're cheering too. Yeah! Hosanna! You know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Because that's what everybody else is saying. Matthew 21, from our passage today it says, in verses 10 and 11, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? I mean, we're cheering for him, we don't even know who he is. The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from from Nazareth in Galilee. So they didn't really know who he was either. In their minds, he was a prophet. And in John fourteen seven, Jesus said this, If you really know me, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. He was talking to his disciples there, but the the, the, the operative phrase there, there is, If you really know me. And these people didn't. They didn't really know Jesus. They just know there were a lot of people out there getting excited about him. There's this uh, little one-man parade going on and so they just kind of you know, they went with the flow. The majority of the folks in that crowd did not really know Jesus. So they joined in the tide of popular opinion that day. Sound familiar? Today they cheer Him and in a few days they would contemn Him. Because they really didn't know Jesus. They weren't really in His corner. They didn't really believe in Him. They just got caught up in the emotion of the crowd that day. They were merely spectators. See, they, a lot of the people kind of knew what... I mean, the word about Jesus had gone throughout Israel. They knew some of the things they, that He'd done, so they wanted a miracle, Jesus. They probably loved the fact that He taught in parables that were easier to understand than the obscure reasoning that they heard from the Pharisees. They were attracted to him because he was a vigorous, dynamic leader. They liked it when he put the Pharisees in their place. But of all the qualities of Jesus that the crowd loved, they they loved him best as a miracle man. It was a bit of a magic show. The crowd thronged around him when he was healing the lame and giving sight to the blind and making the sick better and they clamored for more. Luke 11:16 says others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven as if he hadn't done anything already. But see it was like more, more, more. Pull more rabbits out of the hat. And they must have been especially disappointed on these seven seven occasions in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus performed a miracle and told them not to say anything about it. See, the crowds wanted a miracle, Jesus, but he disappointed them. A Christian radio program some years ago told of a lady who each time she discovered someone claiming to be an atheist, she responded, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And when they did, she usually observed, I don't think I would like that kind of God either. Because most people do not have an accurate understanding or picture of who God is. Just like these people didn't know who Jesus really was. They did not really know Him. All these people looked for the wrong thing in Jesus and were disappointed. But when we really see Jesus, the genuine article, we will be amazed and certainly not disappointed with what we find. See, Jesus had already played the identity game with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi when He asked, Who do men say that I am? And they responded that some folks thought He was John the Baptist um, uh, resurrected. Others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Miss, 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 miss. They do not really know Jesus. And Peter, again, blurts out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got it. You know, the writers of the New Testament were so taken with Jesus that they could not say enough positive about him. The writer of Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Pretty impressive list of credentials, wouldn't you say? The writer of Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. You know, Genesis says, We, we, when it talks about creation, we... The Trinity is evident even in the creation. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in Heaven and He's there today. So we had believers in the crowd, we had rejectors in the crowd, and we had mere spectators. Who's Jesus for us? Are we looking for a Savior? And if, he, if we are, what kind of Savior are we looking for? We kind of like bailout sailors, sa- saviors. I've got a problem, bail me out. You know something I've observed it's kind of interesting and and there's kind of two different responses some people when life gets tough run to the church some people when life gets tough run from the church but we do have that crowd that likes a bailout savior oh god So hard right now. I have got myself in a mess. Get me out of here. And as soon as life, you know, those people that run to the church when life gets tough, as soon as it gets better, you, what happened? We're like a bailout savior. Listen, folks. First of all, let me remind you that God has a way of using those difficulties in our lives to mold us into the character and likeness of Jesus Christ. And He will not always bail you out. Sometimes He'll let those things run their full course. I think I have mentioned to this to you before when we... Um, We're talking about prayer. We're reading Oswald Chambers. And we have a tendency sometimes for people we're praying for who need Jesus Christ. And life gets tough. And and they're going through hard things. And we're praying, oh God, provide for them. Heal them. Deliver them. And Oswald Chambers said, no, pray that God will make it eight times worse. Because that's what he's using to draw them to himself. And instead of helping God out, we're kind of fighting against Him in those situations. And that's our natural tendency. We don't want to see friends and loved ones suffer. We don't want to suffer. We're not into suffering. (laughs) Folks, Paul in writing to Timothy, and this is the Sid Seaver paraphrase, basically says this. If you are determined to live for Jesus Christ, you will suffer. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, take up your cross. That was kind of a symbol of suffering, wasn't it? So, so much for those guys that say, well, you know what they say, don't you? Oh, live for Jesus and... Before you know it, you'll have that favorite car parked in your driveway. (laughs) And you give ten and God will give you a hundred or maybe even a thousand back. Boy, Jesus didn't live that kind of life, did he? He said, I don't even have a place to lay my head at night sometimes. And by the way, the whole reason I came was to be nailed to a cross and suffer and die for you. That's not the blessed life that some people preach, it? See, the real meaning of Jesus' life was not only about the fact that he came to show us the Father's heart, but that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And one of the works of the devil was the power that sin held over our lives and the fear of death that we had because of that sin. That's the real Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting, have eternal life. Folks, it doesn't matter today what the crowds were looking for. It doesn't matter what the Pharisees or the disciples were looking for. The real meaning of Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry, is between us... And God, what kind of Jesus are we looking for? What kind of Jesus are we looking for? Are we rejecters? Are we spectators? Or are we believers? Do we really know Jesus? Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful today that we're not the ones who determined what your mission on this planet would be. It was the divine, eternal plan of our Heavenly Father who loved us too much to leave us where we were. And so Jesus, you came. You humbled yourself. You took on the very nature of a servant. Humbled yourself even to death on a cross at the hands of those you had created. But you did it for us. That's why you came. That's why you came. To die. To die. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To end that. To to bring to an end that over and over and over and over again process of sacrificing lambs and goats and heifers and bulls because sin is such a serious thing that the only way sin can be forgiven is through the shedding of blood. And yet, they were just animals. Animals. Nothing was valuable enough. Nothing was perfect enough to be the once for all sacrifice for sin. So, Lord Jesus, the Father sent you. And he didn't send you on a white horse. He didn't send you to be that kind of king. He sent you to be humble. He sent you to bring us peace and forgiveness and eternal life. And sometimes life on this earth is good. And sometimes it's not so good. But we don't live for the here and now. We live for the then. We live for the the future. We live for eternity. This is not our home. We're only passing through. And so, Lord Jesus, today, my prayer is... That we would really know you. We would see you for who you are and why you came. Not some human list of expectations that we have of you. Because our humanity enters into that and the list ends up being all wrong. We want to see you for all the reasons that you came. That the Father said, here is why I'm sending my son. And we want to believe in that, in that you, in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. It's been encouraging this morning that one has already given their heart to Jesus Christ. They met the real Savior. And if there's anyone else here today who does not really know Jesus, I want you to know that you can know. He came to be the Savior, the one who would cleanse you from your sins and offer you the forgiveness that only God can give. The Scripture says that He came to bring us life, real life, abundant life. And not abundance in the sense of big houses and cars and money in the bank, but abundance in regard to what we feel and enjoy inside. And to know that there's something that awaits us someday that's, that's far better than anything we'll experience on this earth. To be free from sin and the fear of death, because we know, we'll know through Jesus Christ what awaits us on the other side. So I'd ask you, if you want to know the real Jesus today, and you want to know him now, I would just encourage you to pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you You came to be the Savior of the world. I accept today your death, on Calvary, and your shed blood for my sins. And I determined today to make you not only Savior, but Lord, Boss, Master of my life. Thank you for loving me, for dying for me, and being raised for me. I put my faith in you today, And I pray these things in your name. Amen. With your heads bowed still, if you would, heads bowed. If anyone prayed that prayer today to accept Christ as Savior, would you just let me know quickly by raising your hand. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Lord God, you are faithful. You are here in the person of your Holy Spirit today. You have spoken to our hearts. We could not ask for more. You have done marvelous things in our midst today. And we give you praise and glory and honor. And may your triumphal entry into Jerusalem that day be significant of your triumphal entry into each one of our hearts. Because the day we chose you to be Savior was a day of triumph in our lives and rejoicing in heaven. And we thank you for that. Dismiss us now, we pray, with your blessing. May we go in the joy and power of the Holy Spirit, in the grace and peace that you give, remembering that Jesus is to be lifted up in our lives. And we pray these things in his strong name. Amen.